0: My friends, thanks for coming to church at Capital Church today. And we're grateful to those of you who are joining us online as well. We're thankful you're a part of what God's doing in our community today. This morning we conclude a series we've called The Cycle of Grace. The cycle of grace is a mental model introduced to me last fall by South African pastor and spiritual formation leader Trevor Hudson. We've spent the last several weeks working our way through each part of the cycle. Now, if you're joining us for the first time or you've missed out on previous message in the series, I'll give you an overview of the cycle of grace in a few moments to help you catch up. Before I do, let's invite God to speak to us today. Lord. I pray today You give us a new way to think about life and responsibility. May you speak to us and encourage us. May you challenge us and change us. May we leave here or log off with eager anticipation of what you want to do through us. And we pray this in the name of King Jesus, whom we serve with gratitude by your grace. Amen. It was the year 2000... And Connor Ratliff, a recent graduate of drama school, landed a role in the fifth episode of the HBO World War II miniseries Band of Brothers. Now, it was only a bit part, but the affirmation lifted Ratliff's spirit and increased his confidence as an actor. His exhilaration soared when he heard his episode was to be written and directed by America's Tom Hanks the kindest man on planet Earth. However, one day before Ratliff was scheduled to shoot the scenes, his agent's assistant called in a panic, exclaiming, ''Hanks has seen Ratliff's audition footage and he's considering recasting the role.'' The assistant added this detail, ''Tom Hanks felt you had dead eyes.'' Fast forward over 20 years to the present, and we find Connor Ratliff hosting a popular podcast called Dead Eyes. It's a comedic true crime quest to solve the mystery that's haunted him for two decades. Why did Tom Hanks fire me? Ratliff conducts his investigation like it's a cold murder case. His interviews involve uh, anyone who will talk to him that had anything to do with Band of Brothers, including Adam Sims, who got the role in his place. He interviewed Colin Hanks, who appeared in episode 8, and just happened to be the son of the man who fired him. Now, it should be noted, the Dead Eyes podcast is not a bitter rumination of a 20-year-old rebuff. It's actually a humorous and heartfelt examination of failure, and resilience Ratliff has interviewed A-list actors and creators about their failures including Judd Apatow, Seth Rogen Mike Brabiglia, and Knives Out director Ryan Johnson as a guest on his podcast John Hamm recounts his torturous experience uh, when an entertainment executive stated unequivocally you do not have what it takes to be a successful television actor The final installment of the podcast, episode 31, features an interview with the magnanimous and mortified Tom Hanks (laughs) who has no recollection of their decades-old encounter but shares plenty of his own stories of failure and rejection. Now, if you've been following along attentively as we've made our way around the cycle of grace, you'll recall that today we come to the topic of fruitfulness. But friends, if we're going to talk about fruitfulness, I think we need to talk about failure. I'll summarize the point I want to drive home at the outset of this message with insight I learned from preacher and best-selling author Francis Chan, whom I'll paraphrase. Don't fear failure. Fear succeeding at things that don't matter. before I say more I want to review the cycle of grace you see the cycle of grace was developed by the British psychologist Frank Lake when Lake Lake, along with Swiss theologian Emil Brunner, studied burnout in missionaries Lake and Bruner were deeply disturbed as they observed many well-intentioned ministers set out for the mission field with passion and great expectations, only to find them returning home jaded and cynical as their work got hard and their hearts grew cold. The scholars, vexed by seeing the missionaries' bitterness and brokenness, wondered, how could people do the work of Jesus without experiencing the peace of Jesus? Jesus. To answer that question, they immersed themselves in the Gospels. They studied what the Bible said about the teaching of Jesus and the life of Jesus. And as they did, a pattern emerged, which they called the cycle of grace. The cycle begins with acceptance. Lake and Bruner observed in the Gospels that Jesus understood who he was and where he stood in relationship to God the Father before Jesus even began his ministry. At baptism, Jesus embraced his identity when God the Father proclaimed, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Was Brunner considered Jesus embracing his identity in God before he even lifted a finger for God? They correlated our need of developing a strong sense of our identity in God before we do anything for him. So if you truly believe deep down that God accepts you, and adores you because of who you are before you've done anything to prove your worth or earn his affection then when you eventually do stuff for God you'll never do it to earn his love because you know you won't need to and friends when when you learn to trust God's love for you God grace flows into your life filling you with your own love and joy and peace and patience That's acceptance. The second phase of the cycle of grace is called sustenance. Lake and Brunner considered all the soul-filling activities in which Jesus engaged throughout the Gospels, and they concluded Jesus built his life on a number of practices that sustained him, like prayer and solitude reflected on the Bible, worship, spiritual friendship. Thus, Lake and Bruner discerned our need for spiritual practices. If you want to live in the cycle of grace, if you want to receive God's grace as you go about your life, you gotta do things that bring you closer to God so God can work in you through those practices to shape you and replenish you and restore your soul. In the third phase, Significance, Lake and Bruner observed how Jesus embraced His purpose as the way, the truth, and the life. Thus the scholars concluded that, that we need to embrace our God-given purpose. We're born to be God-bearers to the world. We're called to be active partners in God's mission of turning this upside-down world right side up again. And finally we come to fruitfulness. Frank Lake called this phase achievement. But our friend Trevor Hudson renamed it fruitfulness for its theological imagery. Here we're talking about outcomes and results of our work in the Lord and in the world. Now, friends, I've appreciated the encouragement that I've received from many of you as we've made our way around the cycle of grace. I've heard an unusual amount of feedback from people who have cherished each truth from the Bible as we've seen it demonstrated in the life of Jesus and then applied to our own lives today. It's great. But I've also noticed a consistent response from some of you as you've anticipated this message on outcomes and achievements and results. And the response is unease. It's apprehension and trepidation. Because if we're going to talk about fruitfulness, we got to consider the possibility of fruitlessness. we got to think about failure. Look, there are a lot of ways you can burn out, but the fastest way may be failure. When you work your what-not off only to achieve lackluster results. We're talking uh, about living with the unfulfilled expectations that others have of you, that you have of you. The the discouragement and disillusion that accompanies burnout often comes when our dreams get dashed on the stone-cold surface of reality. Now, I would argue that's probably why the missionaries in Lakenbrunner's study hit rock bottom. Remember, after concluding... After considering the life of Jesus in the Gospels and contrasting it with the life of the missionaries, Lake and Bruner concluded that the people in the ministry, people in ministry were not living in the cycle of grace. They were working through the cycle backwards, counterclockwise, against the flow of grace. They worked tirelessly to achieve fruitful outcomes so they would feel significant and they hoped that feeling of significance would sustain them and strengthen them and fill them up so they could keep blowing and going and stressing and striving to earn the acceptance of the people around them. You see, in those missionaries, it wasn't a cycle of grace. It was a cycle of works. And my friends, today as we conclude this message, my question to you is this. Which direction are you circling? What's the dominant way you're living your life? are you living in the flow of God's grace or are you circling the drain as you spiral down the cycle of works my friend if you are presently experiencing a stubborn fatigue that seep deep into your soul poisoning your thoughts and feelings with despondency and despair consider the possibility you may be going the wrong way around the cycle of grace if failure zaps you of energy you may be going the wrong way around the cycle of grace. If letting people down causes you to break down into a heap of shame, my friend, you may be going the wrong way around the cycle of grace. Some of you know, I'm working very slowly on a PhD in leadership from Fuller Theological Seminary. I'm studying how leaders create environments in which feedback is easier to give and receive. And one of the things I'm finding is leaders who fear failure, leaders who see failure as a condemning evaluation of their significance and acceptance don't respond well when they hear an unfavorable truth about themselves. When they get feedback, they get defensive. They deflect. They blame. They rationalize away the feedback. They minimize its importance. My friends... If you're failing to receive feedback with dignity and empathy from a colleague or an employee or a friend or a spouse, you may be going the wrong way around the cycle of grace. But here's my plea to you today. Don't fear failure. Fear succeeding at things that don't matter. Friends, why do we have to let failure get our goat and push our buttons? that's both a protest and an actual question. The the protest is an objection to the misery we impose on ourselves. And the question is one Lakenbunner already answered for us. The the reason we allow failure to rain on our parade is we're living our lives circling the wrong way around the cycle of grace. Henry Clown suggests we've got to learn to normalize failure in our everyday lives. Now when Henry says we should normalize failure, he doesn't mean we should settle for mediocrity. He doesn't mean we should phone it in. He means we should see failure as an opportunity to grow and learn and get better rather than a castigation of our significance and our acceptance. I could summarize all I've said here with this insight from John Ortberg. He says, outcomes are great sources of feedback, but terrible sources of fuel. Think about that a second. What's he arguing? He's arguing that if you see outcome as the fuel that keeps you moving and grooving and giving and going, then you're moving the wrong way around the cycle of grace. What did Dallas teach us? I remind you all the time. Grace is opposed to earning, not effort. My friends, you don't need to earn God's love. You just need to turn toward it. And it's from that love you can respond with effort. Now, where do we see this balance of earning and effort in the Bible? Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 8. The Apostle Paul says, For it's by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. In this passage, the Apostle Paul wants to make clear there is nothing you can do to earn God's favor. When the subject is grace, it doesn't matter how often you come to church, how loud you sing, how much you give, or how much you serve. There is absolutely nothing you can do to earn God's favor or make yourself worthy of it. But the good news is, you don't have to. It's a gift. And a gift simply needs to be received. But then, in the very next verse, Paul declares, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Handiwork here translates the Greek word poema. It's where we get our word poem. But but the word has a broader definition than just poem. Poema it, it can be anything that's created, though it often has an artistic implication, like work of art, which includes poems, or paintings, or sculptures. The New Living Translation interprets the verse: "For we are God's masterpiece." He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Now friends, here's just one of the rich theological points of this passage. God created you to be fruitful. God created you to join him in his work in the world. How often do I remind you? He's called you to bring heaven on earth. He's called you to bring up there, down here. But my friend, if you're spinning the wrong way around the cycle of grace, hoping to earn your significance and acceptance, you'll likely give in and give up before you've done the work that God's called you to do. That's why I'm pleading with you. Don't fear failure. Fear succeeding at things that don't matter. Why do we live as if outcomes are all up to us? See, when we give up our way of doing life and take on Jesus' way of doing life, that easy yoke we talked about in the first week of the series, when we do that, Jesus now does the heavy lifting. But for us to receive that, for us to believe that, that's got to take humility. The humble are dependent upon God. How do you feel about being dependent? Dependent. The Apostle Peter says it this way, First Peter 5, or 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. See, the humble look to God in their everyday lives. It's not that they sit around and do nothing, it's that they abandon outcomes entirely to him. According to Peter, we, verse 7, cast all our anxiety on him because he cares for us. See, it's the better way to live. It's the more peaceful way to live. Because, think about it, once you've done the work most of the time the outcomes are out of your hands D- Dallas offered a potent image to illustrate the absurdity of our attempts to, to control outcomes you ever watch someone bowling but after they release the ball they stand in the lane and they go mm, 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 like that it's ridiculous <laughs> But look I've learned a lot of things From Dallas Willard Ask my children Or my staff I have a Dallas Willard quote For everything I really do But, but get this Out of all the things I learned from the late Dallas Willard th- This quote has shaped me More than any other Dallas said Don't trust your best Do your best And trust God understand what he's saying throw yourself into the work that you're doing but trust the outcome to God John Ortberg writes about the pressures pastors put themselves under how after every message every weekend we ask how did it go what should I have done differently should I have been funnier should I have been deeper or should I have been slower should I have been faster But then he describes how Dallas Willard responded after giving a message at John's church. He says, they walked to the car together. Dallas was a non-anxious presence, just humming an old hymn as he strolled along. John said, he was like a child letting go of a helium balloon and watching it float away wherever the wind takes it. It's the ability to do your best, then let it go. Well, friends, when it comes to releasing outcomes to God, most of us act like the child who let go of the balloon, but didn't want to let go of the balloon. Ah, ah, ah! <laughs> do your best, then let it go. I, I've used this analogy with our team over the years to remind ourselves that we need to do our best without trusting our best. Now, when you think of the ease of letting a balloon go, do this with me. Hold your hand up like this. And watch this. Ready? Just release. Am I giving you permission to be lazy? Good night, no. to, To explain that, I want to take you to a passage I quickly covered in the third week of our series. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. This is a great passage. Paul says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. To stand firm means to be committed. It means to persevere. It means to to make a decision to hold on no matter what life throws at you. Paul says, be steadfast, be steady, be faithful, be firmly grounded. And I got to ask you right here, friends, what do you need to do to find strength in God in this season? If you're feeling weak or wobbly, what can you do differently? I take you back to that, that that idea of sustenance that we talked about a couple weeks ago friends are there daily practices you can put in place to receive sustenance and refreshment from God in this season do you need to join a small group so you can forge friendships with with people who will remind you that you are an irreplaceable individual with a measurable value to God what do you need to do or do differently you got to believe it's God who works in you, but you have a part to play too. As Paul says in Philippians 2, we work out our salvation as God works in us. What do you need to do to stand firm in the Lord? Then Paul says, let nothing move you. Now here, Paul doesn't mean be stubborn. The the truth is, some of us have adopted some pig-headed attitudes and opinions that need to be surrendered and sanctified by the love of King Jesus. But that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about the things that shake our faith. He's talking about the things that will trip us up on our journey or lead us down another path. What are those things? The worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the promise of pleasure, the nagging lie that seeks to convince you every day that you'll never be good enough, smart enough, pretty enough, successful enough. Is there anything or anyone in a position to move you from Jesus Is there a habit, an addiction, a a sin that's shaking your faith? Is there a fear that's making you weak in the knees? Is there a person who you so desperately want to please, maybe even more than you want to please Jesus? Well, Paul pleads with you. My dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Literally, Paul says, always abound in the Lord's work or overflow in the Lord's work. What does he mean? Well, it's hard to describe in a single sentence, but, but I know it when I see it. I know it when I see it in the unending patience of a parent with a special needs child. I know it when I see it in a woman of God who makes moves to reconcile with her mom or her brother or her former best friend. I know it when I see it in the way a new believer gives away some of his hard-earned income so someone else can have more. Friends, th- there's a lot I think God wants us to do together in the days ahead. But I commit to you, I will spend a lot of those days challenging you to throw yourself into God's work in the world. You see, the things that God wants to do in this world, He wants to do through you and me. So I'm not going to encourage you to, to make yourself available to God. I'm going to dare you to give your whole life to Him and His work. I'm going to dare you to give it your best focus, your best energy. No, I'm not, I'm not saying you need to change your career. The vast majority of people who give themselves fully to the work of the Lord don't need to change their careers. In fact, God probably wants to do His work through you right where you are now. Your job, your neighborhood, your family. You might be perfectly placed right where God wants you to do the work He wants you to do. I watched a great interview of Ron Johnson years ago. Johnson was the business executive at Target who made Target cool. Then as vice president of retail operations at Apple, he pioneered the concept of the Apple retail store and the Genius Bar, where just recently a brilliant young genius saved my life by fixing my daughter's phone in under five minutes. It was a miracle. <laughs> well, Ron Johnson is a follower of Jesus, and he worked at the right hand of Steve Jobs. As he, as he did so, he expressed this mission for his wing of the company it's simple love people at work love people at work naturally Johnson knew he needed to love his co-workers even the difficult ones and Steve Jobs was famously one of the difficult ones but he loved Steve and he served Steve and he blessed Steve but, but Johnson sought to love his customers too his primary goal wasn't to get them to buy an Apple product. It was to enrich their lives. Johnson lived by Dallas Willard's definition of love to will the good of another. He wanted every customer and every colleague to experience God's love through his love. That's pretty ambitious, pretty spiritual. Well, how'd he do at his job? Was he kind of a loser? sitting around and praying for people when he should have been working. Friends, you got to understand, all the while he made Apple a ton of money, making a profit of over $4,000 per square foot each year at every Apple store. And that sounds like a weird statistic, but you have to understand how that works in retail. That is twice the amount of its closest competitor, Tiffany & Company. Look, I have no idea how God wants to work through you and your context. But if you'll let him, he will open your eyes to see what he's doing around you. And he'll invite you to join him. He he wants to change this world through you. Remember, you are God's masterpiece. He's created you anew in in Christ Jesus so that you can do the good things that, that he planned for you long ago. Hear me, friend. You are unique. But your uniqueness is not based upon the quality or quantity of your talents or skills. You're unique because no one else has been wired exactly like you and put in this exact time and space as you. And it's in those circumstances that God has prepared good works for you to do. Only you can do what God wants you to do. There are good works, deeds, actions, words, that God has intended only for you. He specifically wired you for these works. He's specifically given you opportunities to prepare for these works. He specifically put you in a place, geographically and relationally, to serve Him by doing these works. Only you can do what God wants you to do. So don't fear failure. Fear succeeding at things that don't matter. Now I suppose I could argue against that statement, only you can do what God wants you to do. As I consider things that God wants me to do, I consider other people who could probably do them better. I think of preachers who could preach better sermons. I can think of leaders who could do a better job leading my team. I I can think of parents who who could make better parents to my daughters. I, I can think of guys who would make better husbands to my wife. Look, it's not hard to find individuals with more talent or more wisdom or more maturity who could do what God wants me to do. But thinking like that misses the point. The things He's prepared for me to do were prepared for me to do. Not them. Not you. It's true. Henry Cloud might might be able to teach my daughters how to love God and love others better than me. But I'm their daddy. Not only I can be their daddy. And, and only you can be mom. Only you can be daughter. Only you can be roommate. All right, maybe that's only true until you move out. <laughs> uh, but but right now, right now, God specifically put you in this place and this moment for this work. Let's go. In Romans 12, 6, the apostle Paul says, We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Paul says we all have different talents and abilities and callings. Those are given to us individually at the discretion of God as he literally, Paul's words, measures them out to us. Now there there are several lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. Though there's overlap, each list is different, which tells us that no list is exhaustive. There there may be spiritual gifts that are not listed anywhere in the Bible. The, The purpose of these texts is not to offer a comprehensive list, but a representative list. What's the point of this paragraph? Find your gifts and use your gifts. It's your responsibility. Paul offers a sampling of gifts. He says some of us have a gift of serving. Of course, everyone's called to serve. but, But some have an unusual calling and passion to meet the needs of others. They don't seek the limelight. In fact, they prefer being in the background. And it may not matter how they serve, as long as they serve. And if you're called to serve, serve. Some are gifted to give. Now, just like serving, we're all called to give of our resources, for sure. But some have the gift of giving. And I'll tell you, if you've ever seen someone like this, they are unusually joyful about giving their money away. They spend time strategizing about how to use their resources for good. Often these people are given a special ability to make money, and that's all a part of God's plan too. They make more money so they can give more money. Some people are gifted to lead. They're good at leading teams. They're good at strategizing and vision casting. Perhaps they've used their gifts of leadership most of their lives on the ball field or in the corporate world. But God wants to use those gifts and talents for his kingdom as well. My friend, what have you been given? How are you using it? 1 Peter 4.10 Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. How could you use your gifts to serve the people around you? and in our church community even you know what at all four of our weekend gatherings at Capital dozens of people serve to make Capital happen some help us create an environment in which everyone who enters our doors know that, that their presence brings us joy they're fiercely welcoming people some people serve in our kids ministry By far, our largest volunteer ministry is our kids' ministry. And my friends, I will never forget the gift that I was given by the kids' ministry volunteers who served me growing up. I could tell you about Sharon and Rhonda and Joe and Julie. I could tell you about how they taught me at an early age that I could trust Jesus with my life. And I did. And God God's work through them dramatically altered the trajectory of my life. Some of you have been involved in uh, what we call capital cares, through which we serve people in need. And I'm going to tell you a little story about capital cares. For the last few years, we've been praying particularly that God would give us an opportunity to serve the needs of our community at large in a more significant way, and we just had this sense that God wanted to do something particular through our our church. Well, not too long ago, an organization called World Vision. You've heard of World Vision. It's a massive global Christian humanitarian organization that that partners with children and families and communities to, to reach their full potential by tackling the causes of poverty and the causes of injustice. Well, here's what happened. They've developed a program in partnership with um, a little-known retail outfit called Costco. And... Here's the scenario. Costco, in their locations, they often have a surplus of material goods that they no longer want to sell. And they want to give them away. And so they approached World Vision, this massive organization, and they said, is there any way you can help us to distribute these goods throughout the United States? So here's what World Vision did. As World Vision began a study to seek a single church in every major city to distribute those to those in need. And for one reason or another, they asked us to be that church. It's it's one of the most exciting things I think God's ever done in our church community. But I'm going to need your help. See, in the days ahead, uh, we're just building out this project, okay? We're in the earliest stages of doing this. And We're in talks with World Vision. Uh, we're getting trained. A couple other cities have launched these programs. We're learning from these other churches who, who are, are are trying to do new things, and and we're learning from them. We're going to need your help very very soon to serve because we're, it's going to take a lot of people to do what I think God wants us to do. I mean, they're going to drop off like a semi load a week if we're if we can handle it. I'm serious. Now. Soon, we're going to need your help serving. But I'll tell you right now, honestly, what we need is your help giving. Okay? We've already secured a warehouse through which we're going to distribute these goods. We need a forklift. We need upfront operational expenses. This is going to cost a lot of money to do this. But what an incredible investment of our community's money to serve people in need. It'll be catalytic. Exponential of what we could do and it's Costco so it's going to be really good stuff, right? (laughs) Come on! Look, at at the end of this message I'll tell you how you can get involved. Maybe that's how God wants you to serve. Maybe that's how God wants you to give. First Peter 4.11 If anyone speaks they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves they should do so with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ to him be glory and the power forever and ever amen my friend what have you been given and how can you use your time talents and resources for God's good purposes maybe you feel like you've got nothing to give You're not talented enough, not righteous enough, not old enough, not mature enough. Don't you believe it? God has good works that he's already planned for you to do. You just need to trust him. Maybe he wants to use you to help piece of friends marriage back together. Maybe he wants to use you to reconcile two family members. Maybe he wants to use you to pray for someone a prayer that God will answer maybe he wants you to disciple someone to help them work through their questions and ask them even better questions as they journey toward God friends you know one of the most important works on earth is helping someone think and feel right about God maybe that's what he's calling you to do today for a friend Let's go to him now. Lord, we know you've called us to be fruitful. Your plan is that you intend to work through us to do your work on this planet. But as we walk through life, So many of us are crippled by a fear of failure. And we got to get past that today. We have to realize outcomes are things we can entrust to you. We should entrust them to you. And our stressing and striving is no better than that absurd bowler. So rather than waste our time and energy on fretting about outcomes, I pray you'd give us the faith to release those outcomes to you. Help us to realize it's just as simple as opening up our index finger and our thumb. Give us the faith to release outcomes to you. And Lord, I, I pray, it is, as my friends here are, Are all doing really important work. May they consider what important work you want them to do too. May they consider how you might want them to let their discipleship to Jesus infiltrate the marketplace, the neighborhood, their marriages, their families in new ways. How, as you go about, as they go about their work, how they might be able to see it as an opportunity to participate in what you're doing in the world, bringing heaven on earth. Lord, help us to recognize we're all called to full time ministry, it just looks a little different for each of us. So may you help us to see what we do through those lenses. And I pray you'd give my friends a passion to participate in what you're doing in the world. Give them a taste for it, Lord. I know once they get it, they'll never turn back because there's nothing quite like the feeling of being used by you. There's nothing quite like the feeling of Showing people your love through our love. I pray for people here who don't know you or don't know you well. Help them to recognize you've called them to do good works too. You have a plan for them and it's very personal. May they recognize that this message, even this message, is actually your invitation to trust you with their whole lives and I pray they come to do that so they can join you in your work with us we pray in the name of the king who's coming is coming again amen Amen. okay friends let me talk about some homework for you Um, several assignments here's your first one let it go Elsa um here's what I mean if you don't understand the pop culture reference Um, look you gotta learn to let go of outcomes right remember this you might see a staff member at Capitol do this on occasion you wonder what they're doing they're just a little bit odd okay Um, pick it up use it as an exercise a bodily exercise of what you're intending to do in your heart let it go don't fear failure secondly sign up to serve Now look, hear me very carefully. A lot of what God wants you to do may not have anything to do directly with our capital church community. And that is wonderful. That's God's good work. You hear me? Some of the best work you'll do will be outside these walls. Got it? And some of the best work you do may be within these four walls. Okay? I wonder if God's calling you to serve our community in, in, in a new way. And I said to you before, it takes scores of people to make our weekends work. And it's what we do at Capitol is not just on the weekend. I mean, you know, boy, we're, we're back to it. I think every night something's going on here through the day. You're just walking and bumping into people everywhere you go because there's always something happening because there's always people to serve and there's people in need and there's people to love and it is the most exciting thing and I don't want you to miss out on this, my dear friends. So if you're interested in serving, you can go to capitalchurch.com slash serve. You can fill out the connection card that's in the seat back in front of you. You can always send us an email, info at capitalchurch.com. We'll connect you with one of our team members who will talk to you about where you might be able to serve in our capital community. Also, uh, take a look at a website. We just made it. We just we just established it. CapitalcaresUtah.com CapitalcaresUtah.com And from that website, you have an opportunity to sign up for updates. As I said, we're in the early stages of this program, but if you're interested in participating in some way, we want to put you on this list and want to bring you into this as we start to build out this ministry in the days ahead. CapitalcaresUtah.com Also, when you're on that website, would you... Please consider making a contribution to what, what God's doing here at Capital and through Capital. We don't know where it's leading. It, like I said, it's going to cost us a lot of money. Not like Apple money, but it's going to stretch us as a church community. And that sounds just like God, doesn't it? What does he want you to do? How does he want you to participate in the days ahead? CapitalcaresUtah.com um, Here's a video for you to see. Uh, it's an interview uh, with my friend John Ortberg and Ron Johnson, the former executive at Apple. And I want to encourage you to look at it. It's called How to Find God at Work. Some of you are, are wrestling with what does this look like vocationally for me to bring God into my everyday life at work? This is a good place to start. A guy who did it pretty darn well, okay? Um, here's another video for you. It's, it's one of Dallas's video. It's called Business Is Ministry. Now, this one's a short one, six-minute roundtable video with, with Dallas and a few CEOs who are also followers of Jesus integrating how they did their work with Jesus just to get you to think, my friends. If you want a, a deeper dive, there's a longer video. It's called Taking Theology and Spiritual Disciplines Into the Marketplace. You're looking for a new way to, to, to integrate your faith into what you do Monday through Friday, this is a good place to start. All right? Now, uh, in a moment I'm going to recommend a book to you, but I want to I want to lead up to the book by telling you this. Some of you are really struggling to let go of outcomes. Okay? And I'm going to tell you a secret about spiritual practices. Often, you gotta, you gotta do things obliquely. You know, we, what our job is, is not to just go out and let go of outcomes, right? This is a little spiritual exercise you can see to just remind you to pray of that prayer. But some of you might need a little more help than that, right? Cause these fears are ingrained. They're these well-worn grooves in your heart and your mind. And so often what we do with spiritual practices is we do things that bring us closer to God that don't seem directly connected to the thing we're trying to fix, but they absolutely are because it's in those spaces that he does things to shape us and mold us and and to help us to knock it off, right? And I'll tell you, two of the great spiritual practices we've seen through the ages that will help us with this are solitude. and silence. And so I want to recommend a book to you. It's called Invitation to Solitude and Silence by Ruth Haley Barton. Dallas wrote the foreword to it years ago before he passed away. The foreword alone is worth the price of the book. But maybe this wonderful little book is a way that you can just start to approach God and start to realize, no 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 no, you can trust him with outcomes. You you can trust him with results. You can do your best without trusting your best, okay? It's available digitally. It's available on audio. Check it out, okay, friends? Stand with me. Here's a verse for you. Ephesians chapter two, verse 10. I read it a moment ago, so I won't read it again, but this image on the screen in the graphic that follows you can find on our website a little later today and, and on our social media accounts to we'll be watching for them. As always, if you'd like to receive prayer, you can send us an email throughout the week, care at capitalchurch.com. Um, we also have some people here at the front if you want to come and be prayed for if you're in the building today. Um, but, but friends, you gotta understand the the people who serve in, in our prayer team, these are people, one of the ways that they are fruitful, is by participating with God and praying for your needs. And so would you please reach out? Would you please send us that email? Stick around as, as our time together concludes. Come and receive prayer from somebody here at the front, okay? Here's what I want to pray for all of you. May you stop fearing failure. And may you believe you are God's masterpiece who's created to help him bring up there, down here. Thanks for coming. Grace and peace.